This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at 1-8 Distilling. Founded in my hometown of Northeast Washington, D.C., 1-8 Distilling is committed to representing the nation's capital by producing the finest grain-to-glass spirits from scratch. Using only locally sourced ingredients in the Mid-Atlantic region, they've created their district-made line of fine spirits. The core range is all made in-house and includes vodka, Ivy City Gin, that's my favorite, barrel-rested Ivy City Gin, bourbon, and rye. Now, I have to tell you, I had some of the barrel-rested Ivy City Gin for the first time when I was visiting last week, and that stuff is phenomenal. You need to try it. You can ask for District Made at your fine local retailer, or if you live or work in the DMV, pop into the distillery's bottle shop. They're open Tuesdays through Sunday, right there in Ivy City off New York Avenue in D.C., and the bottle shop also carries a full range of merchandise, it's pretty cool, and cocktails to go. Visit them online at 18distilling.com. That's O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T distilling.com. While you're on the site, join their mailing list to stay on top of their upcoming releases because they're doing something all the time. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 18D. That's O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T, the letter D. Check them out. And now, back to the show. Your marketing staff is good. I mean, I, I get, like I said, I get stuff from you guys all the time, and it all looks very interesting. Mm-hmm. I just uh, don't get down to Centerville. Well, hey, that's, as I, that's I'd like. Right. We can always ship it to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, UPS is still running. Yeah, that's true. Gosh, okay, no excuses. No excuses. No, no excuses. Yeah, you left yourself open. <laughs> <laughs> this is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello, and welcome to Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher. On today's show, I'll be returning to a place I haven't been in about a year, probably about a year and a half, maybe two, I don't know, to visit a good friend of mine, I had the pleasure of once again interviewing Jay Ashton Lowe, winemaker at the winery at Bull Run. But first, I'd like to remind you to please hit that subscribe button and rate the podcast on whatever platform you're listening. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. It helps us grow and it gets the word out about the great things that the craft beverage makers are doing in this region. It's very easy to do and it helps us out tremendously. So please subscribe to the show. Also, Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is now available on Alexa. Just say... Alexa, open barrel tasting podcast, and the latest episode of my show will play on your device. And that is pretty exciting. My guest today is Jay Ashton Lowe, and he's the winemaker at the winery at Bull Run in Centerville, Virginia. Ashton Lowe started making wine for the winery at Bull Run in 2012, and he's responsible for all aspects of their winemaking program. He's worked as a winemaker since he graduated from the University of Georgia with degrees in biochemistry and molecular biology. Throughout his career in the wine industry, he's received numerous awards, including Best Winemaker four years in a row. Established in 2012 as a scenic working farm vineyard, the winery at Bull Run lies on 225 acres adjacent to the Manassas National Battlefield Park. It's also right next door to an equestrian farm so you can see your horses. The winery itself was built to represent the two types of historic barns in Northern Virginia, a smaller 1800s-style barn and a larger 1920s-era dairy barn, complete with hayloft and haylift cable and beam. The owner's passion for the history of the land led them to create the largest working farm in Fairfax County. 
and to salvage the old stone foundation of the Hillwood Mansion. It was burned in a fire some 30 years ago. It's a great place to visit for history, but we're here to talk about wine. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Ashton Lowe of the winery at Bull Run. Let's all raise a glass. Okay, once again, I find myself at the great winery at Bull Run. Uh, I came here two years ago, maybe 18 months ago, probably closer to two years ago, and I met Jay Ashton Lowe. (laughs) Thank you who is uh, the winemaker here. We had a great conversation. Yeah. This was one of the first wineries that I, you know, that I visited and interviewed in person at a great time. However, the podcast, I'm not too proud of. <laughs> you were fantastic, uh, but at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, that was okay. We had a good time. And I'm really glad that I could sit down here with you again and we can talk about what you've been doing and, and all the great things you're doing here. So, Ashton, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about how you got into winemaking, a little bit about your background. Uh, well, it was a pretty, pretty circuitous path that I took, but um, in uh, 2008, I had the chance to go back to school and um, get back into you know, the sciences, you know, um, which I had always had an interest in. And I had aspirations of, of going to medical school and along the way, I got into uh, biochemistry at the University of Georgia. And um, once I got into biochemistry, I, I had had relatives who made wine at their homes, uh-huh. and it just—it was a really—it was a really natural, you know, fit to um, to have advanced degrees in biochemistry and to go into into you know fermentation. So I found you know fermentation. I began making wine and uh, beer in my kitchen. And then I had, of course, I, I was working in the labs there at the University of Georgia. So I had, you know, full you know, spectrum of, of equipment to test it on and uh, able and willing people who wanted to try it. So uh, it just, it, it, I really found my, you know, my passion there. Where were your, where did your relatives live that were uh, making wine? In Virginia, um, you know, Harrisonburg, you know, my uncle Ray he lived down in Broadway, Virginia, and okay. he was a little home winemaker, older gentleman. and. He made, you know, three or four gallons of wine a year, 10 gallons a year from, he had a lot of fruit trees. And so he made fruit wines and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. the reason I asked is because my yeah. grandparents did the same thing. Yeah. They, they lived in uh, Bedford or outside right. of Bedford, Virginia. You yeah. So you're here at Bull Run. There's a lot of history. The wine uh, industry in Virginia, mm-hmm. it's chock full of history. It has a rich history. But here yeah. at Bull Run, uh, it's a historical landmark, actually. So what is, it, what is it like to make wine here? Well, it's, uh, it's great because, yeah, I've been here since you know, you know, the beginning. I, you know, I left the University of Georgia in 2012. You, you found an ad you know, for a job for a winemaker. I came up here. So I've actually been the original you know, winemaker you know, for the winery at Bull Run. I just made most of their wines at other locations, and then it was brought here. I made some wine here. Um, but our, our positioning with the Battle of um, you know, Manassas, you know, the Manassas battlefield is right next door. You can see it from our upper deck. And the history that draws um, our location on 29 and our, our distance from D.C. and the history there. I mean, we're very you know, close to a lot of kind of landmarks of, of Virginia history. So that gives us a lot of you know, traffic, you know, which we appreciate, and, and business. Um, 
and we tried to you know, build a place here. You know, John, the owner, has really put together with the landscaping and the um, and the age on the uh, the the way the buildings look from the outside and their appearance and all this stuff. He, he's really tried to you know, to make a you know, winery that's kind of time sensitive to you know to the region and that kind of thing. Yeah, it really looks. Great. I grew up in D.C. I'm a, I'm a Yankee, I right. guess. So yeah. we call it the Battle of Bull Run. Right. You guys call it the, <laughs> the it, Battle of Manassas. Yeah. Okay. Let, how many acres do you have here? Or how many acres do you have vines on here? So under vine here, we have just under 10. Oh. Um, and all this is, uh, is Norton. In, in Virginia, you have to be particular about where you grow certain things. The, the land here uh, s- you know, stays a little more wet. Uh-huh. Um, there are springs in the ground in different y- locations. You know, Norton is a little more tolerant to having you know wet feet, you, you know, or roots than other grape varietals. So, uh-huh. in this area, we grow strictly Norton. Um, so we have a you, you know a four-acre vineyard over here, right when you come in the driveway, and then a five-acre you know five or six acres when you come you know you know around the property on the backside just over the hill there that you can you see from the winery itself. Now we have a large property, 120 acre property down in, um, in Rappahannock County in Amosville. Uh-huh. And that's where the, the mother load of our fruit is grown, which would be considered, you know, a uh, uh, state fruit because we own, you know, own that vineyard. So it's quite, it's very hilly there. Yeah. So it's got nice rolling hills. It's got, um, great, great, you know, sun, it's got a mixture of, you know, loamy soils. And so it, it has good drainage and it's a lot better for growing the more traditional grapes that people are, are familiar with than, than the hard clay, you know, soils of, of Virginia. So you got to be pretty, pretty, you know, you know, specific about, you know, where you grow certain grapes. Yeah. Listeners to this uh, podcast will know, because I always bring it up, unfortunately, for some people who are uh, fans of Virginia wine is that, you know, well, Virginia had a rocky history in wine right. early on. And I think it's because winemakers and wine growers, grape growers, didn't exactly know exactly what did well here. And, you know, sometimes it, it's a hit or miss thing, but a lot of times it just comes from knowing what you're working with, knowing grapes, knowing soil, that type of well, thing. Well, the challenges are, are bugs, um, you know, insects and... Um, and the weather conditions. Uh-huh. Um, so, a lot of the vines that you know in the history of of you know, Virginia you know, wine making and growing, they're they're very susceptible to diseases like you know, downy mildew and powdery mildew, um, you know, cedar rust and you know, things like that, which we have a lot of because we have a warm, wet you know, climate traditionally. So yeah. those things are the are the kiss of death for traditional grapevines from the old world, which, I mean, that's where they all came from originally when Thomas Jefferson was trying to you know, turn this into the new Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do that. I mean, the grapes would just get wiped out because we had um, insects that were, you, you could eat them up, which the, the native grapevines aren't susceptible to because they, they built up a de- defense against them. So like, that- Like Norton. Right. Okay. But, a lot of the native grapevines in Virginia, um, or East Coast in, in general, are are immune to to uh, uh, phylloxera, which is the is, is the grape louse. So that insect eats the roots uh-huh. and destroys you know, the grapevine. Well, they don't on native East Coast 
grapevine. So that's why, you know, then I think, I don't know about the exact time, but in the later 1800s is when they came up with you know, grafting technology. So you could take a, you could grow, you know, native grape in a, you know, you know in a nursery, oh. you know, grapevines in a nursery, and then graft, you know, say, you know, a Bordeaux grape, Cab Sauce, or, um, you know, Petit Verdot, graft that onto an East Coast rootstock, and then grow a Petit Verdot grapevine. Okay. Because it was immune to the bugs. Now, then what you had to combat are the diseases, you know, you know the fungus that grows from being in a warm, wet climate. So that, uh, those were the challenging things that they came up with or that, you know, you know were happening. So it took a while, like the early you know, 70s, to get the technology of sprays and picking good sites and having enough slope and all that, that, that it really started to kind of fine tune. And that's when we really began to, to pop as a wine region. Talk a little bit more about the challenges of that because we have a rather schizophrenic mm-hmm. weather of climate here. And we just went through some of that. For example, right. last week we were sub-zero, sub-freezing, sub right. not sub-zero, thank goodness. Sub-freezing right. temperatures, little snow. Right. Today, it's supposed to get up to 60 degrees. Right. As somebody who, you know, makes his living, right. <laughs> has to care for those grapes or is concerned about those grapes, what do you, what kind of challenge is that? Or what do you do day to day? Well, to make sure that happens? Um, you drink a lot of beer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, shy of that, you just hope, hope for the best. The years really fluctuate. So, and, and they run somewhat in trends. So if you've been doing this, you know, for a little while, you can start to kind of pick up on the trends and adjust either your own vineyard if you can, or make sure you have contacts with other people that you can, you know, buy fruit from. So 2019 was very similar to 2013. Uh-huh. 2020 was very similar to 2014. So they seem to run in six, six or seven year kind of pattern. And within those, you might have a three-year pattern. So if you kind of pay attention, um, you can somewhat anticipate, but it's, you know, it's farming, you know, so you just have to kind of go with what you got. So last year we had a freeze late, which killed a lot of our primary buds on our grapevines. So we had to use the, the, the secondary buds and the secondary bud is not as predictable fruits growing as the primary bud so you know the fruit was coming in in kind of weird chemistry that we didn't expect a lot last year but you know i'm i'm pretty good with chemistry as a biochemist and yeah. so uh, it was able to adjust and adapt and overcome and and we ended up you know, making some you know nice wines in, in 2020 just as we did in in 2018 where you know some people didn't make wine at all or or, or they made a lot of rosé or that kind of thing um yeah we were able i i vacuumed up i don't know how many hours i, I spent riding around in a penske truck because i would get calls and i would call people and i would try to find two ton lots one ton lots i mean there were a lot of fruit around i found vineyards that i didn't even know existed <laughs> but they had you know two tons of a non-rain drenched watery grape you know that was good to make wine from so i mean i vacuumed up tons of fruit from all over the place that i don't know that other people you did that but i mean i I did what i had to do to 
to make sure we had grapes. How much wine does that yield? Two t- can can two tons of grapes. So yield? kind of the rule of of you know, thumb is you get 150 gallons of you know finished wine from one ton okay. of grapes. Now that being said, uh, you know Chardonnay and Merlot really hold true to that, but your smaller, drier grapes, Cab Sauv, Petit Verdot, might be a touch less. Your larger, juicier grapes, um, Cabernet Franc, um, you know, Chamberson, those kind of, you know, Malbec, but you don't find a lot of Malbec in in Virginia. Those are going to yield a little bit more than 150 gallons. But to do my spreadsheets and to to know what I'm going to need based on how much your production, I base all my math on, on 150 gallons of finished wine per ton of fruit. Wow. So 150 gallons is two and a half barrels, which is 750 bottles, which is uh, 20, you know, 67 and a half cases, something like that. See, that's why you winemakers are have tech backgrounds. <laughs> um, and, and as a matter of fact, and you didn't, you know, you were, you know, quite uh, generous about the climate and all of those things. But something that I found in doing this podcast and talking to a lot of the winemakers here is that it seems, and I've brought this up before on the podcast too, it seems that winemakers, in this region at least, that I've spoken with, come from pretty much two pots. The smaller one are the family wineries. People have just been making wine, Mm -hmm. maybe third, third, fourth generation winemakers. But the vast majority of the other pot are people with advanced science (laughs) and math technical degrees, engineers, it's just, and it lends itself, makes sense. I never, it was surprising to me to find that Mm -hmm. because I have such a romantic thought of winemaking. I'm thinking that these people just, you know, just do it out of, you know, the magic of the barrel, but it's chemistry. Well, so it's both. It's both chemistry and artistry, which I guess why it it appeals to me. Mm -hmm. Um, It's chemistry, you know, meat and potatoes on the front end. It's not... It's not sexy. Um, on the back end, it's all artistry, um, you know, with a pinch of, of chemistry. You have to hit certain parameters for t- to create a nice, ageable wine. But I've had plenty of chemically perfect wines that are terrible to drink. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, pick anything off the grocery store shelf that's under about you know, 15 bucks. And that's it. And I mean, those are going to be, you you, you know, chemically targeted from large producers and they're going to hit every single spec. Right. And they're going to be completely unremarkable to drink. Yeah. Okay. Or you can, you can drink an artistic wine that's going to be 150 bucks a bottle. It might blow your mind and change your life, but you can't drink that every day. And so there's two sides of that coin and kind of, you know, finding where you hit in, in the middle based on the economics of your winery, um, because that is a driving force with the amount of wine you're going to turn over in a year and your price point and your location. And, you know, there are certain e- economic principles you have to, to follow. I mean, sure, I could lay around and make artistic wine all day long if I wanted to, but, you know, it might need to stay in barrel for 18 months or it might need to get this or do that or, you know, but I can't do that because there are economic principles that I have to adhere to because I have wine coming in the door that I have to 
uh, move and bottle and it's going out the door and you know so there are certain things I have to pay attention to. I have to clean my barrels out because I have wine coming in right behind it yeah yeah you all do a great volume of business here yeah I think larger than many of the vineyards around here many and because of the nature of where you where you yeah. are I want to go back to something before we get yeah. too far away from sure. it because I don't want the listeners of this program to think that you know that Ashton's going around this the roads of Virginia with a Penske truck just looking for <laughs> grapes, okay? You guys have what, 64, how many acres? We have grand total around you know, 60 acres under vine, 62 maybe, something like that. And you, you know, and a lot of the, you know, and a lot of what you make here yes. is a state grow. Right, so, so we grow Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Cab Sauve, Viognier, Chardonnay, Traminette, Chamberson, and Norton. That's a lot. We grow the, all those <laughs> in our vineyard. We're adding this year Petit Man Sang, and we're adding Vidal Blanc. Um, and if I can twist their arms, we'll add some Pinot Gris. But not uh, tonight. Um, well, I can only I can only sway so many minds so fast. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, that's in the back of my <laughs> okay. mind that I would like to get some tonight going at some yeah. point. Yeah. It's uh, it's a process. You know, because it, it honestly, it's about $25,000 to plant one acre. Hmm. And then it takes 200 plus you know, man hours a year to maintain that one acre. Um, so therein lies, you know, somewhat the trap when you have multiple vineyards in multiple locations, multiple locations, which we have, you know, four vineyards in four different locations. Well, that takes a whole new setup. Got to have a new tractor. Got to have a new sprayer. Got to have, you know, a person to maintain it. You get, yeah, I mean, so it's got to have a lawnmower. You got to be able to cut the grass. You know, there's a lot of stuff that Overhead, goes into, yeah. well, and that's part of the reason that people keep all their stuff close to the winery. But that's also the kiss of death if you have a bad weather event at that location. Yeah. So you got to spread it out a little bit. Yeah. You've got to buy from other people who, you know, you know, grow fruit. So you really have to maintain those relationships and be flexible. Yeah. Don't get locked into that whole 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 estate thing, um, because you know your flexibility goes down the tubes really quick. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I wanted to stress that because uh, I do have some people who uh, winemakers who I uh, speak to on this podcast who uh, you know they do go by a strict estate rule, sure. and that's and fine. They have, and they have they have different economic pressures upon them. Right. I wanted to stress the fact that. Yeah. I mean, you all are building, as you told me before we started, you're, you're going to be constructing a museum. Yeah. And you have a lot of traffic that goes to come through here. And so, right. you know, you don't want to say, sorry, no wine today. All right. You know, so. But when you do have to go off a of state mm-hmm. to get your grapes, you try to stay within the state of Virginia. Oh, sure. Correct? Yeah. I yeah. mean, um, and every year we hit the 80 to 90 percent mark of everything that we produce comes from you know, Virginia, yeah. and in some years when it's a good you know, growing year, our vineyard produces eighty percent of what we need, and I only need to buy you know a little bit from other places in you know you know in Virginia. I think the highest it hit was you know ninety percent. I think that was you know last year because you know the vineyard's been planted since twenty thirteen, so now it's just you know getting its you know roots under it, so to speak. Um, so the, the production from our own you know, vineyards is increasing every year as, as our you know, production increases. So yeah, every year it's, 
80, 90%, 100% you know, Virginia. You know, some years if you know, you, Virginia has has a you know lean year or our vineyards, I might do you know fifty percent, sixty percent from our own vineyard. You know, fill up the rest from you know Virginia, but I can't I can't go through a year and not make wine. I don't have that I don't have that flexibility because yeah. I mean yeah. we don't have a warehouse with you know thirty thousand cases of wine just you know sitting in it, mm-hmm. and because we're gonna burn through twelve to fifteen in a year. And so, I mean, it's just, and plus that's enormously expensive. And I mean, that's a lot of dough to, to yeah. sink in to your inventory. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we try to run it as lean as we can and we've got probably 10,000 cases that we have, you know, in storage. Um, but you'll go through that in about, but I'll eat that up in three quarters, you know, or a year, depending on sales. And, yeah. but I've got 12,000 cases coming right in behind it. I yeah. generally make 12 to you know 15 every year. This year I'm making, last year I made 18.5. This year I'm making closer to 20,000 cases. We're trying to get our inventory up just a little bit. Okay. Well, it's a good segue to get into demand then, because what's happened since the last time we spoke is a global pandemic. Yeah. And yeah. because you are uh, a, a destination site or a tourist site. I don't know how much of your wine before the pandemic you sold on site as compared to what you shipped. Probably the most, more of it was on site. Is that we fair? do not distribute? So, okay. so every every bottle of wine that 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 we sell goes through our tasting room, or it's a customer who bought it from the website. Then we shipped it to them. Okay, well, or okay. they called us. All right, but we do not distribute our product. No, I don't, okay, I didn't mean through like to anybody. Uh, other outlets. Oh, okay. I didn't mean liquor store, but I meant okay. through off your website. Yeah, yeah. Before this whole pandemic thing, how much did you sell on site as compared to what you sold through the website? I, I do, you, do you have any idea? I have no idea. Yeah, okay. yeah, the numbers that I do know is that uh, twenty twenty was a better year overall sales wise okay than 2019 okay so we're actually up all right during the pandemic than we were without the pandemic so now there's a lot of things that went into that we have an amazing uh group of people who are in our wine club and they supported us very heavily yeah um, we have great people in the, in the tasting room and the, in, in, you know, the sales staff. And I mean, they, they worked every angle they could work to make sure that we still had a, 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 a pull through even when we were closed. Yeah. So we had to be closed. I, I want to say from March to June, maybe late in May, something like that. I don't, I don't, it's kind of a weird year. It's kind of a blur, <laughs> but, um, you know, I did virtual tastings and we, yeah. we had little, you know, mini bottles that we were mailing out and, 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 you know, we had a lot, we had a bunch of, um, I was doing a, you know, tasting every week yeah, and, uh, doing a lot of stuff online. And then, um, and then, you know, then we got back opened and, and, and they did a great job about, you know, having the outside tents and the space that's safe for everybody. And it's fortunate that we have the outdoor bathrooms and we, and uh, yeah, we rented you, you portalettes, and I mean, we just we we kicked every stone to dig up any any dollar we could find to 
keep as many people employed as we could keep employed and yeah. keep every. I mean, it got down to there was six of us. Yeah, it was me and Connor, and you know four ladies from the tasting staff, and that was it. Oh, and well, I can't speak to employment. I know you just as you just said that the yeah. pandemic was hard on yeah on employment, but like you said, your sales were yeah. good in twenty twenty. Right. You know, as they say, golden linings to different to storm clouds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so nobody, there's no nothing good about a pandemic. However, I found that the wineries or the craft beer places or the craft distilleries mm-hmm. that have done well, that have been able to survive, some even thrive during this pandemic, right. it gave them an opportunity to develop other ways to right. sell their product. And as right. a result, I think the industry is going to be much stronger mm-hmm. when things get back to normal, quote, quote unquote, normal. Yeah. I belong to your Facebook, the, mm. the, the Winery Bull Runs Facebook mm-hmm. page. So I see you have these little events all the right. time. all the time. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to come. My girlfriend and I were going to come to your uh, recent one with the Girl Scout cookies. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah you you yeah. did a pairing with Girl Scout cookies, yeah. but we yeah. didn't make it. So. Okay. Well, that's all right. Yeah. Um, we had always in the past relied heavily on, on events. Mm-hmm. And then once that, uh, well, I wouldn't say heavily because we're in a good spot. And we get a lot of just wine traffic itself. But events were definitely an aspect to our business model. And when those were taken away, we had to get very good at selling wine itself. Uh-huh. You know, because there's nothing else that's going to get them here. You know, we had to get good at selling wine. And uh, I, think it, I think it matured our business and elevated our model and be, brought us a little more wine-centric versus event-centric. Now, you know, there, there's nothing bad about having having events. I'm not saying that. No, no, you're making the point that I. But when it goes sideways, yeah, and all you have to fall back on is what your industry produces, then you have to get good at selling that. Yeah, yeah. And and we make a lot of wine, and we got to get we had to get good at selling it. And you did. And we did. <laughs> and and we were able to um, to keep you know keep moving forward. Yeah, and our location helps, and the quality of our 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 staff helps, and the and the wines have I think gotten you know gotten you know, better since I've been here permanently, and uh, it's just it, it's a lot of things, and we have a great location. It's just you know, yeah. and the property's beautiful, so it, it really it's a it's a it's a team effort. Yeah, your marketing staff is good. I mean, I I get like I said, I get stuff from you guys all the time, and it all looks very interesting. Mm-hmm. I just. Uh, don't get down to Centerville. Well, hey, that's, I, that's I'd like. Right. We can always ship it to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, UPS is still running. Yeah, that's true. Gosh, okay, no excuses. No though. excuses. Now. No excuses. <laughs> yeah, you left yourself open. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to ask you about a couple more things. One being, and I'm going to mix these together. I want to talk to you, as I did last time, about, the, about Virginia wine in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little bit about it. I know Virginia wine has improved dramatically over the past 15 to 15 years. I'll mm-hmm. say that uh, getting better every year and uh, the reputation is, is getting growing. Obviously people are not just c- coming to the venues because over the pandemic, they were buying your wine because right. they wanted to drink it. And that's, right. a, that's a good sign. Um, talk about, I, I mentioned to not as a grape and this is where I'm going with that. And uh, we had a little discussion beforehand, and you mentioned the region that it comes from, and it's, you know, talk about that, and so we can let some of these people know what they're drinking here, and where it comes from, and why Virginia is such a good place to grow wine grapes. Well, 
so I would hesitate to say, you know, Virginia is a preeminent wine growing spot because it, it is laced with challenges. However, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to make it that though. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I feel that we grow certain grapes better than other regions. Uh-huh. If we have a comparative year with them. Right. So those grapes in my mind are Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot. I think we grow those two grapes better than anywhere in the world, given that we have a decent growing year. Okay. The Cab Franc and, and Petit Verdot in 2019, I would put it up against any, any wine in the world of those two varietals. Okay. It was as good as it gets. Our Viognier in Virginia, the Petit Mansang in Virginia. All right, those four grapes, I feel Virginia grows as good, if not better, than anywhere else in the world, provided we have right a, a good growing season. Okay. Now, that's what is the the um, the EKG, you know, yeah. great year, bad year. Yeah. Okay year, bad year, great year, yeah. you know, it's all over the place. Well, Petit Mansang grows in a region in, in France near the Pyrenees mountains, down in the south you know, kind of western down near, you know, Lourdes and all that, you know, Toulouse in, in that region. Well, that's also where Tanat is from. Yeah. Well, Tanat or uh, Petit Mansang grows very well in Virginia. It would seem that Tanat would do that also. Mm-hmm. And so I love Tanat. It's a smaller grape. It's got a thick skin. It gets very, very dark. It makes inky, black, tannic, acidic wine. I mean, it is in the wheelhouse of winemaker's dream. Because, I mean, it'll almost make itself mm-hmm. um, like the Petit Mansang does. You, you don't have to, as long as you give the Petit Mansang a, a good environment and the yeast a good environment that you just got to let it do what it naturally wants to do. And Tanat's the same way. You don't have to watch it a lot. It has a nice acid backbone. It has high tannin. It's got great color. So it. I, I wish more people grew it in Virginia because I think we would grow it very, very well. Uh, but it is hard to find. But it's one of my favorite wines to drink. I love it. I do too. That's why I keep asking. It's just hard to find it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, I think it's, it's I, now, let me, full disclosure, I didn't even know the thing that the sure, grape existed right. well, until I mean, five years ago. There's, you know, thousands of Vetus vinifera grapes, which is the yeah. genus and species, the of of you know, premier winemaking grapes and there's you know so it's hard to know and they're all over the place but they're all in the same kind of regional climatic region they're all from the same area all from right around the mediterranean all of them yeah so of the wines you produce here is there a favorite of yours that you have well so personally i like cab franc the best um and i like viognier those are my two you know my two go-to's mm-hmm. Um, I like the elegance of uh, Cabernet Franc. I like how it ages. I like how it grows. I like the the you know, the lightness of the your color relative to you know other grapes. I just you, for me as a wine drinker, it offers a little more. I like to drink things that have a little more, more interesting palate, and with some of the stronger grapes or more tannic grapes, or you know if they're over overly extracted you know, doing red wine fermenters and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, they, it loses, you know, kind of some of the, of the elegance of the wine. When I drink wine, I like to be able to kind of maneuver around through the wine and think about what the winemaker was doing when he made it. Uh-huh. 
and with wines that you just get hit in the you know in the face with a barrel stave or the tannins are so harsh that they you can't taste anything for my wine drinking and for my wine making style that's just not that's just not what i like yeah and so i lean to to a little and that i guess that's probably why i drink a lot of french wine if i'm just drinking wine that i you know i didn't make yeah um i drink some you know virginia wine but it's you know kind of sporadic um i saw on your website now i didn't go to your website oh good congratulations didn't didn't buy anything on there so i'll have to change that I'm going to go up to your uh, tasting room after this, though. Yeah, because... Uh, I think know, it opens in a couple minutes. Time is money. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all, it said, uh, you know, in a little paragraph or two they wrote about you, they, you mentioned that you like Reconciliation, which is a blend of yours. I do. And, and I went to Reconciliation, and I didn't see... It had the tasting notes there, mm-hmm. but it didn't say... And I'm sure, you know, I know the blend changes every year. It changes every year. But it's, is there a core... So I make two blends. Um, I make our Meritage blend and I make the the, the Reconciliation. So, you know, the Meritage blend is more of a red fruit style blend. So it has more Cab Franc, uh, lighter Merlot, um, Cab Sauve. May have a little bit of, you know, Petit Verdot in it. So it leans more on the red fruit side. So raspberries... Uh, strawberries, red currants, it, it leans to that. The the recon is the is the black fruit, okay? So that's got more of the petite verdot yeah. and the darker cab sauve and um, and the darker merlot. So it, it leans that direction. So it's more um, petite verdot centric. Okay. Whereas the you know the marriage is going to be more cab franc centric. Okay. Yeah, I think I like the reconciliation. Yeah, too. and uh, you know. We, we sell, you know, good numbers of, of both. Now, you, you, you know, the Recon comes in a, uh, a hand-painted bottle, um, so it's a little different. It's, it's our premium, you, you know, premium blend, so the price point is a little bit higher. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but make, um, make it harder for me to open, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would definitely. I'll lay it down for I, a couple of years. Well, you, maybe you should buy two. Two years. And right. you can drink one and then you can yeah. you, you let the other one age. But, um, yeah, they, they're really, the, the 2019s really, it was a really, really good year for Virginia. Okay. Um, one last thing before you, Ashton. Yeah. You started 2012, right. right? Yes. I know you had a couple of stops before here, but mm-hmm. this has been your the bulk of your career. If you could go back to right before, to, if you could send a text message to yourself, mm-hmm. to 2012, you're about to take this job as the winemaker of Bull Run. Mm-hmm. Is there something you'd like to tell yourself back then that you know now, but you didn't know then? Or has it just been, you happy with the journey you've had? Honestly, it's, and this is going to sound corny or unrealistic, but it's been perfect. I would not change one single thing. When I made the move in 2008 to go back to school and get degrees in biochemistry and, and molecular biology, and then I found you know, fermentation. I mean, I literally made wine from two cans of Welch's grape juice concentrate and a bag of you know, Fleshman's yeast in a gallon jug 
in the closet in my kitchen. Wow. And from that instant, it's like hooch. And fresh. <laughs> and it tasted like hooch. And it was not an attractive wine to drink. Yeah. But I drank it anyway because I made it. Right. Sure. And that one, that one event brought everything I have ever done in my whole entire life to clarity. And it was like a pinpoint of exactly what I was supposed to do at that instant. Then it was just a matter of, you know, finding the right place. Did I want to go to the West Coast? Not really. Did I want to move to Virginia? I grew up in Virginia. I've already been in Virginia. Yeah. You know, I grew up here. I lived in Southern Virginia my whole life. Do I want to look, you know, live in Southern Virginia? No. But I always had in, my, in the back of my mind, if I ever was going to live in Virginia again, I would probably live more in Northern Virginia than, you know, Southern. And I saw an ad on winejobs.com that was written specifically to me. I mean, it wanted all kinds of weird, crazy stuff. It wanted a guy who could run heavy equipment, who knew plumbing, who knew electrical, who'd worked in construction, who had, you know, sales, who had a hard science background. Just, I mean, it was like it was written to me specifically. And I knew as soon as I read it uh, that I would get that job. And, you know, and I hit you send on Monday morning at nine o'clock and they called me at nine thirty, and they're like, you're perfect for this job. I'm like, I mean, you wrote it. I mean, it, I mean, I'll send you my resume, but it's got everything you put in that, in that, uh, ad I've done. Wow. And, uh, it was just, it boom, it just all came together. So, I mean, I, I would, I would make sure, I, if I were to text anything, I would say, do it, go for it, do it, take the job. Because I, you know, I thought about it for a little bit before I hit send. And uh, so, but it, no, it's absolutely, it's the best decision I've ever made other than marrying my wife that I've ever done. Well, I'm glad I asked you that last because everything after that would have been anticlimactic. <laughs> so Ashton, thank you once again for giving me a little bit of time. We can talk. Talk again soon, hopefully. Absolutely. Um, it sounds great. Anytime. Come back and uh, go to one of your events. Fantastic. But thank you very much. That'd be great. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's another show in the books. I had a great time speaking with Ashton Lowe of the winery at Bull Run. If you live in or near the DMV, or if you're going to be visiting historic Virginia, you must make a point of stopping by the winery at Bull Run and the Manassas National Battlefield Park. So when you do... Please, whoever you speak with there, tell them that you heard about them on this here humble little podcast. I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. If you agree, please share the podcast. The more it grows, the more I can get the word out about the craft beverage culture in the DMV. This show was created, written, and produced by yours truly. I'm Howard Fletcher. Please shoot me an email and let me know what you thought about the show. Also, if there is a craft beverage maker that you would like to have highlighted or you think I should be highlighting, please let me know. I will make contact with them as soon as possible. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce to you. I know there's a ton of media out there you could be listening to besides me, and that's why I work so hard to bring you the content that I do. I truly appreciate your time investment in me. Thanks again for listening. And remember, always have a designated driver, so I'll see you next time. Peace
You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.